Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Carl Reiner died earlier this summer. He was 98. In a world where the word legend can get overused, let's be clear. Carl Reiner was a legend. He started in comedy during World War II. He performed on stage, on the radio, on TV, in movies. He did it all. He was on TV at a time when TV was this weird new thing that nobody was really sure what to do with. All that's pretty amazing. The important thing is, though, that the stuff that Carl worked on, it's really funny, still. He created The Dick Van Dyke Show, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. He co-wrote and directed Steve Martin's The Jerk. And, you know, his best buddy was Mel Brooks, best buddy and collaborator. The two of them hung out together pretty much every day. Carl Reiner kept working right up until the end, too. One of my favorite recent things he did was on the television show Parks and Recreation. He played Ned Jones, the president of Pawnee Seniors United. You know... You remind me of my brother. Yeah, the same name, Leslie. He lost a third of his body in a motorcycle accident. A middle third. But they sutured the hell out of him. He's, he's fine now. Much shorter, but a good-looking young flat man. When I talked to Carl Reiner in 2017, he was nice enough to invite us to his home for the interview. The thing that put Carl Reiner on the map was a TV program called Your Show of Shows. It was a 90-minute sketch and variety show. It aired in the early 1950s. Alongside Sid Caesar and Imogen Coca, Reiner was one of the actors. The show had sketches, dance numbers, all done live in front of the cameras, like all television at the time. Here's a little bit of it, featuring Carl and Sid Caesar. Your roving reporter Carl Reiner here at LaGuardia Airport, awaiting the arrival of a plane load of eminent visitors. Among them, the distinguished Viennese authority on the manly art of self-defense. His new book on self-defense has just been published. It's entitled, You Too Can Be a Winner, or Pick on Someone Smaller. Here he is now, Professor Ludwig von Stranglehold. Good evening, Professor. Good evening. <laughs> Professor, I enjoyed your book tremendously. There was one... Professor, there was one chapter that particularly interested me, but I didn't quite finish it. Would you describe to us what you meant by coordination as a means of self-defense? Oh, that's the main basis of, of, of the manly art of self-defense. Supposing I'm walking down the street and you're a fellow with a gun. Now you say, stick him up. Stick him up. Now, the minute I hear that, the split second, it's all in the timing and the coordination. All of a sudden, my left hand goes up here, my right hand goes here, I twirl around, down on the knees, and I plead, please don't kill me. Very loud, understand? Carl Reiner, welcome to Bullseye. It's so exciting to have you on the show. I'm more excited than you are because I'm selling books. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Carl Reiner, in your 95 years, you get a chance to do some press. Yes, yes. <laughs> your, your folks were both immigrants. Yes, and yes. Your father was a clockmaker and your a watchmaker. watchmaker. Yeah. Your mother was uh, illiterate, actually. Yes. we. I never found that out until my brother and I when we were about 13. She'd always say to us when something was, read it to me. I haven't got my glasses. And uh, when I, the saddest thing, and it was almost when I found it, I, 
I was like caught in a vortex. I've never been that emotional about anything. She was, she, I found her diploma from school. It said, signed by doctors and every this one, this child is ready for, you know, to go to work. It was a kindergarten diploma, which she got when she was six years old. I couldn't believe it because she was able to go to work in the sweatshops, in a flag factory of all things. And when the Geary Society came to see if there's any child labor, they threw in her bin, in a cloth bin, threw thousands, hundreds of flags on and said, don't move. She t told me those stories. I couldn't believe it. Were you like a guy that people said, you're funny, you should, you should uh, I guess at the time, be on the radio? You know, I, when I was young, I was always listening to radio shows. And I remember there was a guy named Lou Holtz, a comedian who used to tell jokes. And I would retell to my friends who didn't listen to it, I would retell the stories and embellish them a little bit. And I, I think that's what started me. It's, that's what starts anybody. You, you fall in love with a performer and you try to copy them, and then you go past that, and something occurs to you that's new, that's never been done before. So uh, when you went into the service, did you have the idea that you could scam your way into the performing arts section of the military? No. As a matter of fact, I, I so wanted to, because before I, I went into the Army, I, I tried to get an equity card, you know, a, a a, uh, an like actress, an, right? Uh, to, to be in the uh, union. Yeah. So what I did was I was a second tenor in a touring company of the of the Merry Widow. Didn't do it. I went into I went into uh, the Signal Corps, and I, but I did entertain. I could do impersonations of, and I just entertained at the at the rec halls, and I was on my way. This is an unbelievable story. It's like a bad movie. It's like a good bad movie. I was, we have been going from from uh, Washington State, my troop, the 3117th Signal Battalion, was going to parts unknown. We didn't know where we were going. And we stopped off at Hawaii on our way to, we found out later, Iwo Jima, the invasion of Iwo. And while there, I saw a poster for G.I. Hamlet, but Maury Sevens. I went to see it with my friend. And there on stage was my old friend from the NYA radio workshop, Howie Morris, playing Laertes. I went backstage and said, Howie, you are great. He said, without saying thank you, he said, do you have an act? I said, what? He said, we got these touring companies of soldiers going around to the islands entertaining. And you were always funny. Do you have an act? I said, well, I worked at, he says, come and audition. I auditioned for Maurice Evans. And Captain Alan Ludden. And they said, we'd love to have you with us. I said, I'm going someplace tom tomorrow. And I remember, never forgot this. I mean, the major said, uh, we, can, uh, we can talk about that. He called the General Richardson of the Pacific Base Command and had me traded like a ball player. <laughs> I was, the next day, I heard my name called in the, re in the, in the rec room. Carl Reiner, please report. I came there, and I was a member of the uh, entertainment section. I, I never forgot my act. This is a, this was cute too. I was doing an act where I came on stage with a uh, 
a doggy blanket and a leash. And I said, uh, I'm terribly sorry. I said, there was going to be this Monty the Talking Dog was going to perform for you, but he passed away yesterday. <laughs> and he said, he was an extraordinary. He's the only talking dog that is known. I could tell you what he did. He says, I could, I, I'm also an impersonator. I didn't do it anywhere near as, but I'll show you. And then I did all my impersonations. And after the audience is applauding, I says, you, you should have heard Monty doing this. I mean, and I said, and he did something I could never even think of doing with a lot of makeup. He played Roy Rogers' Trigger. And I said, I couldn't do that. Anyway, that was my, my uh, moments in the Army. But the Army made a comedian out of me. That's one of, the, one of the standard rules of comedy is when you're starting a comedy act, tell the audience a dog died. <laughs> yeah, I know. I well, they went up, but they knew with I had a leash there. They knew, they knew not, that I was. Yeah. What happened when you got back from the service? When I got back, uh, very soon after, I started to uh, television started to happen, and I went on some television shows. I remember them too. They don't. One was called The Fashion Story with Marilyn Day, a singer. I played a, a fashion photographer, a jokester. And then there was a thing called Maggie McNellis's Crystal Room. This is 1945, 46. It's very early in television. And then there was the 14th Street Review, where I was the host of that, later on with Jack uh, J uh, Lemon. And Max Liebman saw me on that show and invited me to come on the show show of shows and that made and started my career i was watching uh your show of shows on youtube earlier today and one of the things that struck me about it was i am so used to watching shows that have an audience have an audience that is just goosed within an inch of its life you yeah. know they like put some amphetamines in the water they <laughs> hand out so that people will flip yeah. out and there's stuff that there's stuff that sits there and you can see sid caesar working for his laughs, particularly. I mean, he's usually at the center of things. Yeah, and, and timing for laughs that he didn't know he was going to get because he could ad lib. Once he started getting a laugh, he would ad lib something, maybe a gesture or something, and compound the laugh. When he ad libbed, did it make it difficult given that you were uh, doing a, a live to the air show? One of the things that was a rule on the show is never laugh at anything happened. The way fake laughter was done on Burl's show, they turn around and shake their shoulders, make believe they broke themselves up. That was verboten on our show. What kind of guy was Sid Caesar like uh, when he wasn't on stage? He was such a huge performer, like such a enormous presence. Yes, he was. He was a dear, dear man. He loved his his cast and friends. We we went out to dinner every night after the show. Every, for years and years, everybody thought he was a. When it, when I did the the Van Dyke show, they thought that Alan Brady was based on Sid. I said, no, Sid was a pussycat. He was our friend. He was. He loved to laugh, and he loved all the people around him. He found Mel Brooks. You know, he was a, a young kid writer. He wasn't on the staff. Sid brought him in. What was it like the first time that you met Mel Brooks? I'll never forget it, because he wasn't on the show yet. He was visiting Sid. He used to give Sid jokes. Sid would give him $25, $30 jokes. 
But I walked in the room my first day, not knowing anybody, and standing up was this guy. I don't know who he was. And he was playing a Jewish pirate. <laughs> and I remember him saying, you know how hard it is to set sail these days? You know they're charging for sail cloth? $3.40 a yard. That was the first time I saw it. And the, the following week, knowing what he though I saw a thing called We the People Speak, where somebody said I was in Stalin's toilet and I heard Stalin say, I said, crazy. I went to Mel without even asking anything. I said, sir, I understand you knew Jesus. Just that. He says, thin lad, right? <laughs> he, he was he sent. He wore sandals. <laughs> he walked around with 12 other guys. Yes, yeah. They used to come into the store. They never bought anything. But nice boys, I gave them water. That was the first lines I said of it. And for the next 10 years, I questioned him just to lighten the load in the office. At parties, people made special parties. So about 10 years we did it. You've been, you've been uh, best buds with Mel Brooks for... Uh, 65 years or whatever it is. 19, we met in 1950. Uh, yeah, no, 1950, I guess. Yeah. At, at first, did you think, God, this guy's exhausting? No, no, we had more fun together. And then when he married and our wives got together so and loved each other so much and had so much in common, we became a really close-knit family, you know. See the funniest guy you ever met? Single funniest man I ever met in my life, ever, 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 ever. And I met some funny guys, including, you know, Steve Martin. I kind of, when when I interviewed him, I kind of couldn't believe it was real. Who, Mel? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, this is like the funniest guy ever. I know, he is. This is probably the funniest person ever. I know. And when he does these one-man shows, he plays his movie, uh, Blazy Saddles, and then takes questions and answers. He just kills them. They, they stand up and cheer. We'll finish up with Carl Reiner after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. The Americans with Disabilities Act was signed 30 years ago. So why, to this day, is the disability community still fighting for their rights? Listen now to learn what they're fighting for. On Throughline from NPR, every Thursday. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to my 2017 interview with Carl Reiner. Reiner was a pioneer in comedy who performed for American soldiers during World War II, created the Dick Van Dyke Show, directed classics like The Jerk, and kept working pretty much his entire life. Carl died this summer. He was 98. Let's get back into the conversation. Um, your uh, show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, uh, grew out of a pilot that you had written for yourself. Yes. What happened is after the uh, the review format disappeared, I was being offered television situation comedies. A lot of horses and guns were being shot into. And I came, and I remember the, said, what do I, 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 my, I had read some bad shows, and my wife said, why did you write one? I said, I said, I don't know about it. She says, well, you, you can write. And I I remember exactly when it happened. I talked to myself. I said, Rhino, what piece of ground do you stand on that nobody else stands on? That's what you should write. I said, well, 
I live in New Rochelle with a wife and children. I work in New York as a writer-actor on a show. I write about that, the home life of a, uh, a writer for television. And I wrote the thing called Head of the Family. And I, I got Barbara Britton to play my wife, Morty Gunty, Sylvia Miles to play Buddy and Sally. We did a pilot, played it on the air, didn't do too well. I, I was okay. And I said, I had written 13 episodes in case somebody bought it. I wanted to have a Bible for the other writers to know what the show was about. And so I put it to bed. I said, that's it. That's the best I can do. And I started to write movies. I wrote a Doris Day movie, The Thrill of It All. And Sheldon Leonard was given my scripts by my agent. We had a mutual agent, Harry Kalsheim. And Sheldon called me in and he said, these are wonderful scripts. I said, Sheldon, I don't want to fail twice with the same material. And he said, good impression, by the way, you won't fail or get a better actor to play you. And he suggested Dick Van Dyke, maybe the most talented man that ever lived. Can I suggest that from now on, you just note ahead of all impressions that it's a good impression, just so folks know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you do any further yeah. impressions. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just make sure to let us know if it's good or bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were the things that you found yourself writing for Dick Van Dyke that you might not have written for yourself if you were in that? Part? Oh, any kind of musical number. My God, I I cherish those musical numbers because I wrote recently a forty-four page show and a musical show was twenty-three. <laughs> to see Mary and him dance together was one of the pleasures of life. Anything else? Was there anything else that was really special about him as a performer? He could do anything you asked him to and then improve it. I remember once we did a thing on sneezes where he got he was allergic to something. He thought he was allergic to his family. He did about a, a hundred different kinds of sneezes and I couldn't believe it. And then he could do two things at once, sneeze and burp or something. I once gave him a a problem, I came in, I was off stage, I said, I want you to sneeze, burp, fart, get a buzz, uh, uh, there's a f fly buzzing around you and an itch in your ear. I want you to do them all at once. He did them. <laughs> <laughs> what about Mary Tyler Moore? You cast uh, Dick Van Dyke as the character that you had played in the original pilot. At the suggestion of a producer, you went and saw him in a show and said, this guy's amazing, of right, course, this right. is it. And then you had to bring in people to play this yeah, life. I saw 23 women. And did you have, even have an idea of what you wanted? No, I just know I knew this needed. I had no idea. That's I said to Sheldon, I don't know what I'm looking for. He said, you'll know when you'll find him. And one day, a girl comes in, and she didn't want to come in, Mary Tyler Moore, because she had failed at two auditions that day. But... In through the door came a woman with beautiful hair, sparkling eyes, a smile that could kill, and beautiful legs. And I, I knew it. I gave her a page to read, and I said, read this. She read the first line. I sold it, and I, I described it. I heard a ping in her voice, and I made my hand into the claw that usually picks up candy in an arcade. And I went across the room, and she thought I was going to cost her. I grabbed the top of her head. I said, come with me, young lady. Walked her down the hall to Sheldon, dropped her, and said, I found her. You said I would. And that was how I found Mary. 
when I watch the Dick Van Dyke show, I feel like, I mean, look, Dick Van Dyke is a very handsome man in his own right, uh, but I, it seems no fair that someone as good looking as Mary Tyler Moore should be funny. Like that doesn't seem appropriate. I, I know. You know what I mean? She didn't know she could be funny. In the very first few shows, she told me she wasn't a comedian. And one of the first shows, I had written something where I said she cries, funny cry, you know, not a, a, a comical. She's, how do you cry comically? Show me. It's the only time I ever showed her, I showed her. She did it. That was the end of showing her anything. She she was she was a kinesthetic. She knew she knew. Dancers are that way. She's a great dancer, a really great dancer. Everything came to her naturally. You must have. I mean, it must have been a big deal to protect the show in a world where, I mean, this is always true, but uh, there weren't a lot of choices at the time. There was a lot of dumb television on at the time, and I'm not going to insult anyone in particular, but like. You were making a show that was for everybody, but that also was specifically not dumb on purpose. <laughs> well, well, I'm not. I, You know what it is? I wrote about myself, and I said, I'm not that different than everybody else. I got a wife and kids, and I, I shop, I do, I argue. I said, write about that, and you'll be writing about everybody. So that's exactly what the rule of thumb. When any writers came, I said, don't invent anything Tell me, uh, anything happened in your life with your wives, your kids? We'll write about that. And that's what we wrote about for the most part. Every once in a while, I went crazy and wrote like I wanted to do a takeoff of Twilight Zone. So I wrote a crazy one that could know 5,200 pounds of walnuts. <laughs> the walnut show was called. Yeah, it's there's, a, there's an absolutely amazing scene in that Twilight Zone takeoff on, uh, on the Dick Van Dyke show where... They've sort of been – Dick Van Dyke is going through this thing where he's trying to figure out if he's been gaslighted basically uh, by walnuts. And he comes home to try and find his wife and he can't find his wife and he's going insane and he opens his closet and this river of walnuts pours Five, out. 500 pounds. Or four, that, we had to give walnuts away <laughs> to the uh, – yeah, that was uh, – <laughs> That was a, a labor of love, that show, because when I came up with that show, Sheldon Leonard wasn't sure it was going to work. And he said, well, you, you do it. I, I have no idea. doesn't sound. Anyway, at the end, he, he wrote to the paper. He said, I could be wrong. He said, that's one of the best shows we've done. It was based on the, uh, the, you know, the body snatchers. But I couldn't use big body snatchers. I made the big, uh, the big you know, uh, zucchinis, whatever they were, into little walnuts. Well, I mean, I I love that your idea for this like pretty grounded, sweet domestic sitcom was like, oh yeah, and then we're also going to do an insane dream episode about walnuts. Yeah, I love the fact that Barry had an eye in the back of her head, so she could always see him <laughs> when he walked away. She parted her hair and says, "I don't do that," you know. And she, <laughs> I mean, all these little things that. May tickled me. She she comes out on that river of walnuts yeah. out of the out of the closet with you know with like her with like her cheek yeah. and the heel of her hand yeah. like batting her eyes. She did, face she, down as though she just slid into second base. Only a good only a a, a talented graceful dancer could come down. Those, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Yeah. It's she was that. 
Oh, it was so sad, her leaving so early. I mean, I imagine that one of the most difficult things about being 95 years old is that people die before you do. I know. Yesterday, somebody died that I was surprised. Yeah, I checked the... I, I wrote that thing that... Uh, it's on HBO now. If I'm not in the obits, I'll have breakfast. And I read the obits every morning to see if anybody's young or old. Lately, I'm the oldest one. They're going too early. In their 80s, 90s. When Mel Brooks comes over, what do the two of you talk about? Uh, how many steps Vanna White will take before she, before they cut back to uh, <laughs> Pat Sajak? You got money on that, or no, no? We just <laughs> say it's usually it's usually six or seven, rarely eight, but never nine. I would have pegged the two of you for Jeopardy guys more than Wheel of Fortune. We guys. watched both. You watch first. We watched Jeopardy. Try to guess along with them. And then we watch uh, all the good talk shows, you know, like Trevor Noah, he's wonderful. And of course, uh, John Oliver is wonderful. And uh, Samantha B is brilliant. She is brilliant. You're a regular on Conan these days. Conan, well, I did one or two of them, yeah. Yeah, I will. He's, he's a wonderful guy. Too tall for this world, though. <laughs> so tall. <laughs> You're pretty tall for a comedian yourself. Oh, I used to be tall. You know, you lose a, an inch every decade after 60. I used to be 6'1". I'm about 5'8 now. <laughs> I'm not 5'9", maybe. You're not. Yes, I think so. You're a big man. You do lose an inch every decade after 60. Carl Reiner, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It was really awesome to get to talk to you. I really enjoyed myself. I'd like to continue, but if you have to go someplace, I'll go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Reiner from 2017. I was really grateful to Carl for letting me and the Bullseye team into his home to record that interview. Afterwards, he took us upstairs to show us pictures. And honestly, it was one of the greatest highlights of my career. He'll be well-remembered as an artist and as a man. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. You might have heard my children making noise upstairs. Jesus, our associate producer, recently went out on his first Pokemon walk in a long time. He caught two shining Grimers and a monster called a Quillfish. Jesus was also kind enough to share some excess Pokemon with my children, who are what I would call Pokemon-aged. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. I don't know if you know this, but bands can't tour right now. So uh, it's a perfect time to support the Go Team by uh, hitting up Bandcamp or wherever you like to buy music and buying one of their awesome, awesome records. You can also keep up with our show on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.